You can turn over to Matthew 18. We're going to be having the Lord's uh, Supper a little later on at the end of the service. So uh, when we kind of wrap this up, somebody can go down and let them know downstairs. That would be great. I want to make sure you say uh, 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 hello to Abba. He's a visitor from Israel, just new to the United States, been here a couple months, and uh, we're helping him out a little bit and, until he gets settled, and, but be praying for uh, this man as he uh, makes his new residency here in the United States, and it'd uh, be great to, for you to get to talk to him a little bit afterwards, and, and uh, he's uh, uh, Jewish, but he's come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, so... Amen. <laughs> Amen. So as we look at, uh, turned our hearts over to um, Matthew chapter 18, we've been looking through this chapter last several weeks, and the theme of this is the childlikeness of the believer. In other words, this chapter speaks about how Christians need to become like children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. We're commonly called children throughout Scripture. That's one of the, the uh, most common titles for a child of God in the Bible. And I think that's simply because a lot of times the Bible calls us other things, like dependent and weak and ignorant and humble and immature. And so uh, all those things are children. And so we want to um, be... Uh, considered as children of God. And in verses 3 and 4, previous studies, we looked at how we had to become, as a little child, we had to become teachable, we had to become dependent, we had to become humble in order to enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And uh, we also looked in verses 5 to 9 of Matthew chapter 8 how God protects, uh, how we are to protect uh, children from sinning. We shouldn't be stumbling blocks to others. Uh, We shouldn't abuse our liberty in Christ and cause other Christians to stumble. And today we're going to be looking at the care of God's children. And we've already looked at those first two, but today uh, we come to a familiar verse in our text. And I just have to make a kind of a preliminary um, comment here about it, Uh, depending on what Bible you have. You may have, if you have a King James Bible, it says there in verse 11, um, for the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. If you have that in your Bible, I'm just going to make a little side note here about that because I'm not going to be speaking about that particular verse. The reason is, is because in the original manuscripts, it's not there. (laughs) It's in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Some of the earliest manuscripts don't have that verse here in Matthew 18. And what happens sometimes, you know, uh, with with earlier manuscripts, uh, maybe a scribe got a little eager or something and thought, well, this will fit in here nicely, and he just kind of put it in there. Um, But depending on what translation you have, it may or may not be there because it wasn't in the oldest, the earliest transcripts. And so somebody just thought they would wiggle it in there. So we're not going to be making comment on that. It is a scripture, it's, but it's found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And uh, so just in case you have a Bible and you're wondering, well, boy, he left that verse out. Well, yeah, I did because it's not there um, in this text. So we had last week a very, you might say, strong word from the Lord considering, concerning causing others to stumble. And he follows along that thought. And last week, we kind of saw the negative side of that. We shouldn't cause another believer to uh, fall, to stumble, to sin. And the positive side is that, of that, of showing care for God's children, is simply that we should care for God's children. And that's what he has in mind here in verses 10 through 14 of our text this morning. Um, we're talking about a childlike believer. Remember, this text isn't talking about physical young little children. Yes, Jesus took a child, probably one of Peter's children, and he lifted him up on his knee, and he used him as an illustration to an analogy of what you have to be like to enter the kingdom of God. But he's not here talking about physical children. He's simply using 
that term child as an analogy to define the nature of one who follows God, who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, de- the text basically says to us that God cares for his children. That's the bottom line there, and that's pretty much what it says there in verse 14 of the text. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish or be marred or be ruined or be led into disaster. And we'll be looking at that word at the conclusion, that word perish, because that concerns some people. But the Father cares for his children. And God is a God who cares for his children. And then also in verse uh, uh, 14 there, we see it says, one of these little ones. And that points out that God cares for his children equally. Right across the board, he cares for them equally. He says in in verse uh, uh, 10 there, one of these little ones, in both times, the numeric one is put in there just so nobody gets eliminated. Everyone is the idea. Every single Christian is thought to be important to our Heavenly Father. So with that in way of introduction, let's read our text, and you can follow along in your Bibles, in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine who never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So the idea here is talking about little ones as children, emphasis on humility, on weakness, on lowliness, on dependence. Uh, that's the way God works, isn't it? Uh, turn over to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Or, yeah, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I just want to pause here a second. And we see what the Apostle Paul writes for us. Look at verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. It says, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were, and then he begins to list things off. Look at what he says. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose that which is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Notice that. If not many wise, there's not a lot of great intellects. There's some, but there's not a lot. That's not the majority of those who come to Christ. There's not many mighty, not many great, powerful, famous, influential people. There's some, but there's not a lot. Or noble, that means well-born or high-ranking royal people. In other words, these high-class people are not dominating the kingdom of heaven. They're just not dominating it. And sometimes people get the idea that they'll have a specialized ministry and they're going to go out and they're going to minister and they're going to witness only to you know, the Hollywood crowd or, or the intellectual crowd or this crowd or that crowd, thinking that somehow in their own way they're going to talk these people into the kingdom of heaven. Well, God says, you know what? Not many of those people are going to come. Not that they don't need to hear the gospel, but they're just not going to come. Why? Because they're self-dependent. They're not humble. They're prideful. Politicians, athletes, movie stars, you can lump them all together. It's not that we don't need to share the gospel with them. I'm not saying that. We do. But some people have the faulty mindset that, boy, if we could just win this person to Christ, think of the impact they'd have. Or, boy, think if this person came to Christ, the impact they would have. No, God says, you know what? I chose the lowly things. There's not many wise. There's not many mighty. There's not many noble. Instead of wise, you get foolish. Instead of mighty, you get weak. Instead of the noble, you just get the common folk in Christianity. And that tells us that our God is for the common people. God cares for little ones. He cares for the simple people. 
That's why in Matthew 25, he says, whatever you do to the least of these, remember, you've done it unto me. And why is that? In verse 29 there in 1 Corinthians says that no flesh should glory before God. Can you imagine what it would be like in heaven if we could get there somehow by our own works, by our own means, by being good? I mean, you know, the first day you'd be in heaven, what would you be doing? Hey, John, how, you, how did you get here? What did you do? Oh, I did this. I did that. We'd be bragging up a storm. God wouldn't be getting any of the glory. We would. And that's exactly why God said, no, it's not going to work that way. You don't come into God's kingdom by your intellect. You don't come into God's kingdom by your power or your influence. You don't come into God's kingdom by your birth or your birthright. It just doesn't happen. Those people seem somewhat disinterested in the things of God a lot of times. Because they lack the kind of humility and the desperation of a little child that's needed to enter. So it's important for us to lay that kind of a a groundwork. Even in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus got up and he opened up the scroll of Isaiah 61. And he said that he had come and been anointed to preach the gospel to who? Do you remember who he said? To the poor. To the poor. See, it's hard... The Bible says for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven, it's easier for camels (laughs) to go through the eye of a needle. Why is that? Because they're not dependent. They have all their needs met in their wealth. It's mostly the poor. And so you have to keep that in mind. You have to keep the kingdom of God in mind with the lowly in mind. Insignificant folks. Not of those, a lot of those high and mighty people are going to make it, unfortunately. And what Jesus is saying is, my Father cares for every single one of these lowly folks. Now, remember what's happening back in Matthew 18. What's happening? The disciples just got told that Jesus, in a little bit, is going to go and he's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be eventually on trial and murdered, killed. And several verses later, in chapter 18, the disciples, what are they talking about? I'm sure they're talking about, boy, you know, it's so sad to hear Jesus, you know, he's going to die. No, it's like they don't care. What are they talking about? Hey, who's going to be greatest? Which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus? Can you tell us? I mean, that's where their heads were. That's where their hearts were. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven when it came to earth. And so Jesus says, oh, you really want to know? Well, I'm going to answer your question a little more than maybe what you want. Have you ever done that? Have you ever asked a question and the person gives you an answer, but then they kind of go on a little bit and you're going, ah, that's enough. I don't want to hear anymore because it's convicting. That's what Jesus does. He goes on and he says, you know what? You can't even get into my kingdom. You can't even enter my kingdom unless you're humble. And if you want to be great in my kingdom, you know what? You must be humble. The humbler you are, the greater you are in his kingdom. And disciples, instead of you provoking each other to pride and ambition and selfishness amongst yourselves, maybe you ought to stop leading each other into sin, sin causing each other to stumble and focus on what's really important here. You ought to be leading one another into righteousness instead of looking down on each other. That's what they were doing. They thought that they were worthy of being looked up to and they began to fight over who was number one. The disciples needed to know, as we need to know today, you know what? If you're pushing yourself up, you've got to be pushing somebody else down. That's just the way it works. Talk to anybody in business. You know what? If, if you want to really go after it, and you want to really, what's the world say? Man, you just, you just do it. If there's bodies strewn behind you, who cares? You made it to the top. That's the world's mentality. But that's a violation of the very heart of God. 
So Jesus says everybody in his kingdom is great because everybody in his kingdom will be humble because if you're unhumble, you're not going to be there in the first place. (laughs) So instead of being proud and self-seeking and creating all this jealousy and envy and all this other things, he says, you know what? Stop trying to claw your way to the top over each other's backs. Now, turn over with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Because whenever we hear we need to be humble, we need to... It's not just here in this text. It permeates the whole New Testament. But Philippians chapter 2 is a great place... us to look at what the Apostle Paul says. And it's good in light that we're having the communion supper as well. Some of these verses tie in. But look at what he says in verse 2 of Philippians 2. Um, Well, let's read the first verse. We can't pass that. That's such a great verse. So if there's any comfort in Christ, any comfort, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction, affection, or sympathy, verse 2, complete my joy And what's he say? By being of the same mind. And then he says, having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Having the same love. What's he talking about? Well, he goes on and he tells us. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. That's interesting. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Why is that, Paul? What's he say in verse 5? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And even, yes, death on a cross. Paul wanted us to understand that, you know what, we need to have the same love for one another. And when you have the same love for one another, you don't look down on other people. And you have a humble attitude about it. And that's what the Lord is trying to communicate to his disciples there's two things here. There's the principle and the purpose. And the first, the principle is basically don't look down on any of these little ones back to Matthew 18. That's what he says in verse 10. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And once again, he's not talking about children. He's talking about believers. That's the principle. That's the standard. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, take heed or or see that. It's it's simply a phrase that says, you know what, pay attention. I want you to be careful about this. It's a warning. And a very important command is coming. And he wants them to understand that they need to be, have their ears kind of perked up a little bit. Last time he said that, he said, basically, don't lead another Christian into sin. Don't cause a Christian to to stumble. Well, here he says, listen up, take heed. And then he says this, that you do not despise one of these little ones. That word in the Greek is made up of two words. It's a compound word. Kataphroneo. And it means, basically, phroneo has to do with the mind, has to do with thinking. Kata means down. What's he saying? He's saying, don't think down on other people. Despise. That's what that means. Don't put yourself up here and look down at them as if they were somehow below you or beneath you. Don't look at other people with disdain. Don't hold them in indifference. Don't look at people as other Christians, especially as useless or worthless or valueless. I mean, the command is very, very simple. It says this, be warned, this should never, ever, ever happen. That's how strong it is in the original language. That you look down on one of these little ones as if he were without value. Don't ever do that. That's what he's saying. 
It says they're one of these little ones, and he's not talking about babies. He's talking about Christians. I hear so many times people use this text, and you know, they use a treatise on how we should tr- treat babies and children. It has nothing to do with that. It's just an illustration he's using. I mean, the reason I know that is because he says in verse 6, one of these little ones who believe in me. Babies can't believe. They don't have the cognitive skills to understand who Christ is and that they're sinners and they need a Savior. They, don't, they can't believe in Christ. They have to come to that point of, of understanding that. And that's the role of a parent, to, to continue to kind of fill their minds with the gospel, fill their minds with Scripture, fill their minds with the goodness of God. So when they reach the age, appropriate age, they can understand, wow, God's good, I'm not, I need to be saved. And so we know he's not talking about babies because babies can't believe in Christ. They don't know him. And so he's talking about believers. Don't look down on one believer, not one. I don't know about you, but I got convicted when I read this, when I was studying. I just, because, you know, I'm kind of a critical guy, you know, and I see something or see somebody and, you know, I'm the first, oh, look at that guy. You know, I'm just that way, my personality, and it's not good. My wife's always elbowing me, you know. I got a big bruise constantly. You know, that's just the way it is. Shouldn't be saying, you're a pastor, you shouldn't be saying, well, nobody's hearing me, I'm in my car, you know. But you know what, God hears me, God sees my heart. It's not in a malicious way, but sometimes it's in a mocking way, but, you know, God, God doesn't like that kind of stuff, and we have to be on guard about that. And he's saying here, don't even put down one, not one. That's why he says one of these little ones. That's the opposite of what the world does. I mean, the world's just putting down Christians all the time. You know, you hear comedians do it. You hear news people do it. You hear everything. You know, if you, you know, the whole Tea Party movement, you know, the one thing that they wanted to get across, they're a bunch of wacky Christians. You know, that's how they disparage them, by attaching Christian to a group or to a sect or whatever. If they're Christian, well, then they must be, you know, half-baked. They're out, you know, in a field somewhere waiting for God to return or something. And to be frank, some of the people in modern-day Christianity help them right along. <laughs> but it's enough that the world does that to other believers. And what Jesus is saying, don't you, even as a believer, think about doing it. He's primarily concerned here about how Christians teach other, treat other Christians. And we seem to sometimes catch what the world does and bring it into the church, unfortunately. And so uh, we need to understand that God cares for all these children and he, his, his followers, and he cares for them equally. Um, so Jesus' words are very emphatic. He's giving a very strong warning to the body of Christ here, to his disciples. In Psalm 15, it says this, The true worshiper honors those who fear the Lord. The true worshiper honors those who fear the Lord, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter anything about it. Um, We can be very good at criticizing other people, at least I can, and God says you have to be careful about that. Well, what are some ways that we tend to despise other Christians or look down at other Christians? First of all, we looked at this last week, so we're not going to go into it in detail, but in Romans 14, 15, it talks about by flaunting our liberty in Christ. We may be free in Christ to do something. That doesn't mean we should do it. Because maybe that will cause someone else to stumble. Um, You know, maybe they're not mature enough to deal with it. Uh, In in 14, 15, they're hung up on the, the Sabbath, all this other stuff. And some of them weren't. Some of them weren't hung up on dietary laws, all that stuff. And uh, they were free, if you were, to eat pork or eat whatever they wanted. And they didn't feel that they were violating anything. But when they did that, there was potentially somebody else who wasn't to that point in their walk yet, and they didn't understand all that, and so that would cause them to stumble. And so it doesn't matter whether it's eating meat or not eating meat or worshiping this day or that day, whatever. Um, Paul basically says, you know what? You have a freedom to do that. You've been freed from all those trappings of the law and, and all that. But don't ever use your liberty to oppress other people. Don't ever use your liberty in Christ to cause other people to stumble or to grieve them or to injure them. That's what he's talking about. And a lot of times, 
you know, Christians have the idea, you know what, what's it matter? It doesn't bother me. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just going to do this, whatever it may be, fill in the blank. And it's a very selfish attitude. 1 Peter 2.15 says we should not use the liberty, our liberty in Christ as a cloak of maliciousness. In other words, you don't want to look around and say, hey, you know what, I don't care what other people think. If it doesn't say it, I can't do it in the Bible. If I'm allowed to do it, I'm going to do it. I, don't, I really don't care. That kind of attitude is not a humble attitude. In Romans 14, Paul says this, don't destroy the kingdom of God in the life of that person for, for the sake of something that you eat or drink. You know, um, we can't despise other people that way. It's not Christ-like. We have to be careful. So don't, don't flaunt your liberty in Christ. You don't want to violate uh, principles of the Lord and Savior that you claim to love and serve. A second way that we can do that, not only by flaunting our liberty, but by looking down on the lowly. Turn over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Look at what he says in verse... He says, my brothers, show no, verse 1, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In other words, if you're a Christian, you're in the faith, don't hold that faith, don't have in your heart a respecter, be a respecter of persons. In other words, don't think of some people as better than others. And look at what he says, he gives us an illustration in verses 2 and 3, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, or your church, your synagogue, whatever it might be, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you will pay attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothing, and you say, oh, well, sit right over here, sir, in the, in the good place, while you say to the poor man, hey, you know what, you stand over there in the corner, you know what, sit down here and shine my shoes. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Very critical, very important that we understand that. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme and the honorable name? By which you were called, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor what? As yourself. Then you're doing good. So the second way is you can look down on lowly people. Considering certain people in a certain social strata is unworthy. And you're just not going to reach out to them. Um, and every time you, you do that, you're, you're dishonoring the Lord. Thirdly, 1 Corinthians 11.20, you withhold what he needs. You can despise another believer by withholding what he needs. 1 Corinthians 11.20 says, when you come together, and this is, speaks of what we're going to be having here in a couple moments, the Lord's, Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. He says in verse 20, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? Uh, they're, they're coming together to celebrate that. And he, what Paul's saying is, you know, you think it is, but the way you're doing it, that's not it at all. Look at what he says in verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Can you imagine, just for a second, that if we had a potluck after church over in the fellowship hall, and we had some visitors here, and, and we extended the hand, and we invited them over there, and we have snacks over there every, every week, but this was a big dinner, and we made a big deal about it. And, uh, you know, before the service, people were bringing their food in to the fellowship hall, and ladies were getting everything set for after the service. And we walked over there after the service, and it was all gone. The tables were all dirty. It was like somebody just went through it and, and, and ate everything. And it was the people who actually brought the food. (laughs) 
They brought the food in. They started setting things up. And they said, hey, you know, this doesn't look bad. I'm kind of hungry. I didn't eat breakfast. And they just, everybody sat down from our own church and had their dinner before church. I mean, can you imagine that actually happening? Or inviting somebody over for dinner. And when they get there, oh, there's your plate. We already ate. <laughs> How rude would that be? How rude would that be? So the result is one is hungry, another one's drunk. And so Paul says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? In other words, you're here to celebrate the Lord's table, and you guys are, are coming together for this, this, this love feast. And it just, the wheels fell off the cart. Verse 22, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? In other words, the poor people that couldn't bring anything to the, 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 the dinner were probably looking forward to getting something, but the people that brought the food already ate it. <laughs> You're withholding what someone needs. That's despising somebody. We can do it by flaunting our liberty, looking down on somebody, withholding what they may need by just eating it ourselves, consuming it. Fourthly, by ridiculing somebody's physical features. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. Interesting chapter. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. The Corinthian church was basically a not too far cry from what a lot of churches are today. They're self-styled, egotistical, proud. They were self-appointed representatives of God. And they were condemning the Apostle Paul. And they really despised him. And they despised him for a very interesting reason. It says in verses 10.10 of of 2 Corinthians, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his body presence is weak. What are they doing? They're mocking the way he looks. And his speech of no account. You ridicule somebody by the way they look or by the way they talk. You mock them. You know, I mean, everybody today has to look like the magazine cover when you're going through the grocery store. You know, that's the world standard. You know, that's not reality. Those people don't even look like that. You know, those those pictures, have you ever seen some of these people without their makeup, these movie stars and stuff? I mean, some of them are downright scary looking. And yet you see them on the magazine, you're going, wow, what happened? You know, that's, that's what the world does. They present something that's not real. So everybody's out there trying to look like them, and they don't even look like them. You need to be okay with how God created you. Not that we shouldn't take care of our bodies, not that we shouldn't strive to do the best that we can to honor the temple of God, as as he calls it. Don't get too hung up on the way you look or the way other people look. Don't mock somebody else. I read this illustration. I thought it was interesting. D.L. Moody, when he preached at Cambridge University, I mean, that's kind of like the as high as you can go as far as education. He was going to speak to them. And he stood up in front of the whole class body there. And here's what he said. Don't let nobody tell you God don't love you because he do. <laughs> and they got their attention, that's for sure. You know, they thought, who is this guy? But see, they've been mocking him. They've been writing all kinds of stuff about him, saying he didn't know how to speak and all that, and he just brought it right out in the open. You know, it's not good to mock other people. Fifthly, by looking with indifference on a Christian who has fallen. And this leads into the rest of our chapter as we're going to be looking at this. But over in Galatians, if you want to turn there, chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It's, that's not what I'm looking for. Galatians. Oh, I'm in Ephesians. Galatians chapter 6. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in the spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And look at what it says. For if anyone thinks he is something, (laughs) when he is nothing, he's deceiving himself. There's another way you can do this, and it's basically to disdain somebody, is, is look with indifference on a Christian who has fallen, who's caught into a transgression. Um, you just kind of look at them, and eh, you know what, they made their choice, tough, tough luck. Deal with it. Um, the Bible says that's not the way we're to treat other believers, whether they're in sin or not. Um, we need to make sure that we reach out to them, that we're gracious about it. The law of Christ says that we should love them in spite of their sin. When we talk in a couple weeks here after Easter about the end of Matthew 18 there where it talks about disciplining a Christian, church discipline, some people say. Um, You know, all that is, is with the goal of restoration. So many times when people think of church discipline, the first word that pops into their mind is excommunication. Get rid of the sinner. That's not what church discipline is about. It may lead to that because we're also called to protect the holiness of the church. But the goal is to reach out in love and grace and pray that that person repents and comes back to the fellowship. That's the goal. You don't just put them out. And there's a prescribed way of dealing with that. And so you have to understand that, you know, that has to, it has to happen that way. We have to reach out to them and not despise them. Sometimes it tries our patience, but that's even good because it makes us depend on, on the Lord. Sixthly, by rejecting those who confront our sinfulness. This is the other side. The one is loving the one who sinned, but this speaks of rejecting those who confront our sinfulness. Um, in other words, when a brother or sister comes to you in, in the body of Christ and says, you know, I see this in your life and it's just not honoring to Christ, I think you need to make some changes. Well, rather than hearing that and understanding that they're telling you that because they love you, And when you reject that, you go, who do you think you are? You're, you're coming over here telling me how I should be, you know, and that's, that's how that, that goes. And we've probably all been there before when we try to reach out to someone who is uh, in sin. And we try to restore them. We try to reach out to them and we get that kind of an attitude. They just want to reject it. Well, it's also true for us when someone shows up on our doorstep and has to point out some hard things to us. We have to realize that, you know what, we need to hear that. We're not above that. You don't just reject it. Um, Look down on other Christians that way, especially when they're obviously a a Christian and it's a brother coming to a brother or a sister coming to a sister. Seventh, the last thing there, it's by using another believer for our own selfish gain. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6, it says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. It literally means to take advantage of another Christian. Uh, We shouldn't do that, period. Uh, Whether it's economically, socially, sexually, anyway, we should never take advantage of another Christian. We should never profit at his loss. Because the word says the Lord is an avenger in all these things. When we despise another believer by taking advantage of them, you know what? The Lord's going to, the Lord will pay. (laughs) He'll pay out that account. For God has called us not to uncleanness, but to holiness. And he therefore despises that believer by doing that is not despising man, but God who planted that Holy Spirit in him. So we have to be careful about those things. Um. So that's the the, the basic principle. We don't want to despise other Christians by flaunting our liberty, by being inconsiderate, 
to the lowly by withholding those who may have need while we indulge ourselves, by ridiculing another person's physical features, by looking with indifference on a Christian who has fallen or rejecting those who confront our own sinfulness or taking advantage of another believer for personal gain. We don't ever want to do that. Now look back at Matthew 18. Here's the purposes that he lays out here. First of all, you don't want to do that because of their relation to angels. These children of God and their relation to angels. Look at what it says in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Why shouldn't we look down on other Christians? Because of their relation to angels. Now, we could go into a whole theological study on angelology. We don't have the time uh, to do that. Maybe we'll do that down the road to give you a fuller understanding of angels and demons and how the whole thing works. But what this this means here in in verse 10, uh, look at it. It It says, I tell you or I say to you, that's kind of an emphatic phrase. He wants you to listen. He says, with all my authority, I affirm to you that in heaven there are angels. means up in heaven, God's heaven, people have some angels. It says they're angels. They belong to believers. They're for us. Hebrews 1.14 talking about angels, he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to serve them who shall be heirs of salvation? What's the role of angels? Angels in heaven are ministering spirits sent to serve God's people. That's what angels do. Which angels? It says they're the ones who do always behold the face of my Father. What's that mean? It means they're the holy angels, not the demons, but the holy angels. They have access to the throne of God. Those holy creatures are special angels, and they're given to the care of God's children. And that's why Jesus is saying, you better be careful how you treat one of these children of God, one of these little ones. Because the angels are given charge over these little ones. And if you're attacking the little ones, you're going to have to deal with the angels. Now, there's a lot of weird stuff today in the church and in our world about angels. But just hear me out on this. This does not teach, this text does not teach that every little baby has a guardian angel. It doesn't teach that. First of all, it doesn't say that. It just says they're angels. Secondly, it's not even talking about physical babies. Remember? So it can't mean that. It doesn't even mean that every single Christian has his own personal angel. I've heard that taught. doesn't say that. It just says they're angels. Collectively. And they're in heaven, standing in the very presence of God. And these holy angels have access to his throne. And they are given the care of those who follow Christ, those who are God's children. You can't conclude that every little baby or every single Christian has a guardian angel of his own from that. It'd be kind of silly when you think about it. I mean, I grew up believing that, just taught that and everything. You know, it's just kind of silly. I mean, so the angels watching you sleep. You ever seen those pictures, you know? The angels sitting there, you know. That doesn't make any sense. You know, angels could be dispatched like that. They're not, you know, time and all that stuff. I mean, that's, they're, in a, they're in a whole different ballgame than us. And if God wants angels to protect us, you know, they, they will protect us. But because of their culture, because of their tradition, especially in the Jewish tradition, it almost became a superstition about angels. 
where everybody, every little child had his own angel. That's why the Jews, when in Acts 12, 15, you remember, they were praying for Peter to be left out of prison. Remember? And the Lord delivered Peter, and he's out there knocking on the door. And the little girl came to the door and came back and said, hey, it's Peter. And they were like, yeah, right, whatever. Come on, we've got to keep praying. You, know? you have little faith again. They were praying for him to get out, but they didn't think he was going to get out, obviously. And then somebody said, oh, it's his angel. Well, why would they say that? That's kind of weird. And some people use that as a proof text that everybody has their own angel. That's not what he was saying. He's just going along, that person in Acts is just going along with the superstition. They believe that when a person died, an angel from their angel would come and inform you and, and just let you know, hey, they're okay. That was their superstition. So they're saying, oh, this means Peter's dead because his angel's standing at the door. That's what they really came to understand. And so the first reason that we're to care for God's children is because the angels care for God's children. Secondly, not only the relation to angels, but the relation to Christ. The relation to Christ. And if you jump all the way back to verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And we went over this before. We're not going to go into this now. But remember that we're one with Christ. When we reject another Christian, we're rejecting Christ. When the world rejects us as Christians, they're rejecting Christ. So when you despise another believer, in effect, who are you despising? You're despising Jesus Christ. That's why in Luke ten sixteen, the Lord says, He that hears you, hears me. And he that despises you, despises me. He says it very clearly. And Jesus was sending out the, the 72 by 2, you remember. And he says, you know what? They're going to despise you, but they're, they're, they're despising me if they do. Christ is one with his followers, with his little ones. That, that should give you a little boost in your step to realize that Christ is on your side. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day, they did just the opposite. If they found someone that they thought was insignificant or uneducated or untrained, they wouldn't reach down and help them. What would they do? They'd crush them. I mean, they didn't care. They stomped on those kinds of people. And they did the exact opposite that the Messiah did. In, in Matthew chapter 12, we looked at this, verse 20. It says this, A bruised reed shall not he break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. In other words, a bruised reed. We talked about how it's, it's something that's, you know, this, this reed that's bruised, it's, it's broken. Just, you know, it's not standing up straight. It's not really good for anything. Couldn't use it for anything. Or smoking flax. Couldn't stay lit. Wasn't really good for anything. See, when Jesus finds someone who is broken or a light that is flickering, not firing on all cylinders or whatever, he doesn't break it further. He doesn't just stomp it out of existence. No, he comes alongside it. And he strengthens the bruised reed. And he fans the flame of the smoking flax. That means he's, he's helping the weak those who are helpless, those who are powerless, those who were destroyed by sin and suffering. He reaches out to them. And that's what we should be doing as Christians. The Lord loves and gathers the broken people to his heart. He heals the sick. He raises the outcasts. He feeds the hungry. He forgives sinners like you and me. takes on their sorrow. He takes on their woes. He, he takes on their sin. That's why we can come to this table and celebrate the forgiveness we have in Christ. So when you despise a little one, you do it against the holy angels, but you also do it against the Lord Jesus himself. And then the last thing there, their relationship to the Father. And this is where he gives this parable. It's probably one of the shortest, simplest parables that Jesus given. He says in verse 12, he says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? In other words, he's saying, think about this with me, guys. 
I mean, if, if a man had 100 sheep, he'd pretty, be a pretty wealthy man. That's a pretty good lot of sheep. And if he had 100 sheep, I, I used to read this parable, and I'm thinking, okay, if I had 100 sheep and one left, I probably wouldn't even know. <laughs> Think about it. 100 sheep, that's a lot of sheep. Especially you're out in fields and they're grazing and, you know, and you're the shepherd. I mean, just normally, if there was a guy with 100 sheep and one of them runs off, he probably wouldn't even notice it. There's only one way a man could do that. And it's not by sitting up on the mountain peak counting all its sheep. That'd be impossible because they're moving around. There's only one way. He'd have to know that the sheep was gone. He'd just have to know. Well, how would he know? He would be so intimately involved with his sheep that even if one sheep was gone, just one out of the, out of the hundred, he would miss the presence of that sheep because he's so involved with his sheep. He knows their personality. He knows their, their, their whole characteristic. And when he looks over his, 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 his sheep, he'd, he'd realize, whoa, so-and-so's not there. So well acquainted the shepherd is with his sheep that he missed the presence of just one out of a hundred. I mean, that's how Jesus is with us. He knows us so well. He celebrates our presence. And he says in verse 13... And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. (laughs) And that's true, isn't it? I mean, stop and think about it. That makes sense. God cares for his little sheep. The parable is also over in Luke 15, verses 3 to 7. There it's used in reference to unbelievers, but here it's used in reference to believers. And over there, in those, those places where you can see the shepherds and the sheep, even to this day, out there grazing, there's all kinds of hills and, you know, all sorts of things. And these sheep could get easily trapped. But the point is, each sheep is important. And I think the implication for us is simple. A Christian who wanders off into sin. A Christian who is caught up in moral sin or spiritual sin or false doctrine, whatever it might be. That Christian, the one who is drifting away, who wanders away, wanders away from the flock, he's missed by the Father. That's what this is saying. See, this wasn't true of the spiritual leaders in Israel. They didn't care less. Matter of fact, they devoured the sheep. They did just the opposite of what a shepherd should do. They never brought them back. They never bound up their wounds. But a true shepherd would. And our God is that kind of a shepherd. Our God is that kind of a God. That's why in 1 Peter 5, 7, it says, Peter says, we need to cast all of our care on him. Why does it tell us to do that? He finishes the verse. He says, because he cares for you. Do you understand this morning that God cares for you? Every single one of you. There's no respect of persons when it comes to God. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't say anything about the sheep. He doesn't favor one because it's fatter than the others or more valuable. It doesn't matter. If it's just one of the sheep... Every one of them is equally important to the Lord. And that's a good, I think, a good lesson for us as the body of Christ. Well, what do we see about the love of the shepherd? It's an individual love. One sheep out of a hundred went astray, and and the love of that shepherd drove him to go after that. It's a wonderful thing to understand that God, when he looks down on his children, 
He doesn't see, oh, there's the church. Oh, there's that clump of believers. No. He sees you. He sees me. He sees us as individuals. That's why we're called living stones. We're individual. We come together as the body of Christ and we each bring what and how God has gifted us to the table. No one is insignificant. doesn't matter how old you are, how frail you are, how young you are, how immature you are. doesn't matter. Because God loves us individually. And that's what's going to make heaven just an incredible place to be, to know that you're going to be in the presence of God along with probably millions of other believers. And yet, it's just as if you and God were there alone. That just blows my mind. No lines. You know, it's not, you know you're not going to get to heaven and go, oh, there's the Jesus line. Look at how long it is. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll go to the Holy Spirit line. You know, whatever. I mean, it's not going to be that way. You're going to be in the presence of God because he loves us as individuals. He knows his sheep with perfect knowledge and he misses one who strays. It's individual. Secondly, it's patient. God's patient. I mean, he has more patience for his foolish children than we do at times. The shepherd's always desiring to bring them back We need to practice that within the body of Christ as well. That's the heart of God. He's a patient God. He's a loving God. Thirdly, he's seeking care. God is out there seeking. He pursues. He doesn't say, well, you know, I'm here when you get around to it. No. That's not our God. God goes after us. You don't have to come groveling back before God when we've wandered away. Because there's no back. We turn around, he's right there. He's always there. Because he loves us. Son died for us. It's true restoration, true forgiveness. There's no beatings, there's no punishment. One thing that always kind of gets in my craw when I hear another believer Say, well, yeah, you know, I, I did something and God's punishing me. You think God punishes you? Boy, what, what is the work of Christ then? Didn't it mean anything to you when Christ hung on the cross and he died? He gave up his life and at the end he said, it's finished? Everything's paid for? It's done? There's no punishment from God to his children. There's discipline. There's discipline. What kind of father would you be? If your little boy or your little girl was running out in the street and you just stood there. Yeah, whatever. Went back to working on your car. You wouldn't do that. You'd, you'd use every fiber of your being to make sure that that child understood you, you don't do that. You would discipline them if they continued to do it. God seeks us out and then the last thing, it's a rejoicing care. There's no grudge. Isn't that great? Don't you love that? I mean, when you mess up in your life and you sin, and you come back and you say, you know, God, I blew it. Do you understand that God's not up there going, man, well, you know, Steve, that was the fifth time this week. I don't know. You know, you're running thin here on forgiveness, pal. God doesn't say that. There's no grudge. No three strikes, you're out. It's called grace. And he rejoices more over the one that came back than the one that stayed. That's what it says. Parents, you can understand that if you have more than one child. If you have a child that's healthy, doing well, and you have another child that's plagued with illness? You don't think you're going to rejoice when that ill child is healed? 
you're going to rejoice. You're going to, well, praise God, my child is healed. And you're going you're gonna to rejoice more over that than you would over, well, the other child never got sick. I mean, that's great, don't get me wrong, but you're going to really rejoice when that other child is healed. Same thing, same principle. Just part of life. I mean, when you're out to sea and you're lost at sea and you're finally rescued, you know what? There's greater joy rejoicing over the fact that you were rescued than if you never went to sea. When you survive a disaster, there's greater joy rejoicing in the survival than if the never disaster would have never happened. That's just the way life is. So he closes off this section here in verse 14. He says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And I'll leave you with this thought, that word perish. Sometimes in the Bible it means die and go to hell. Sometimes in the Bible it can mean to be scarred or to be marred. Sometimes it can be it can mean to be ruined or enter into a disaster. It's used in 1 Corinthians 8.11. It's used in Romans 14.15 of believers who are ruined in their spiritual life. Not in the final perishing in hell. But it ruins their spiritual progress. It ruins their spiritual power. We don't ever want to do that. We don't ever want to treat another Christian in a despising way that would just discourage him spiritually. That's not what we're called to do. And it's because of this that we, when we come together as the body of Christ, that it's to be a time of encouragement, it's to be a time of edification. It's to be a time where we look around and we look. We're actively looking. Are there needs that need to be met? Maybe somebody just needs an arm around the shoulder and a prayer or an encouraging word or a, a jovial conversation. Maybe somebody's been sick and they just need a hot meal. See, that's, that's up to the body of Christ. That's not up to the pastor. That's not up to the elders. That's up to the body of Christ. And we are part of that process. We're not excluded from that. But don't ever think that you leave that to the the leaders or whatever. That doesn't work that way. And I thank God that we're in a church that a lot of that goes on. That there's mutual care continually going on. Sometimes somebody gets sick or whatever. I don't even know about it for a week. And then somebody else will say, oh, yeah, you know, I took somebody some meals and, you know, they were down and out and sick. Wow, I didn't even know they were sick. You know, that's, that's an encouraging thing to hear, that the body of Christ is continually ministering to one another. Because that's for the reason we've been, been called. And so when we take this gospel message outside of these four walls and we take it out to a lost and dying world, they don't look at us and go, oh yeah, you want me to come to your God? Look at how you people treat each other. No, I want them to look at our church, at our lives and say, man, that's a place where people care. That's a place where people are gracious. That's a place where people have a high view of God that, that they haven't walked away, that, that they realize that God is a powerful God, that he's a holy God, that he can actually change something in my life. That's what I want people to see in my life and in yours. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you now as we prepare our hearts for our communion time. And Lord, we ask that you would... Um, the Word of God is very clear. It, it, it tells us that we need to examine ourselves as we partake today. And that just means that we need to, to look deep into our own heart. Is there, is there something wrong? Is there a sin that's unconfessed? Uh, is there an issue with another person within the body of Christ? Whatever that may be, Father, you know what's on the hearts of those gathered here today. And Lord, we we come to you knowing that when we come to you and confess our sins, that you are faithful and you are just to to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the only reason that's, that's, that's able to happen is because of what Christ did on our behalf. 
We, we would never even be here today if it wasn't for the sacrifice, the death, and burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This wouldn't mean anything. I'd rather be home watching a ball game or something. It wouldn't, just wouldn't mean anything. But God, his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, Lord, when he came out of the grave, he conquered sin and death. He paid the price for our sin. It allows us to have a relationship with you. I pray for each person here today. I don't know what's in your heart. I don't know the level of your commitment to Christ. I don't know if you've ever come to him and cried out to him and asked him for forgiveness. But it's never too late. You think of the thief on the cross. There he is hanging on the cross, moments from death. And he cries out to God. kind of prayer that God hears, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I have nowhere else to go. I've tried to pull myself up by my bootstrap several times. And every time I just seem to get wallowed down further in the muck and the mire and the mud of this world. Your word says that you can pull me out of that mud and set me on a firm rock. That rock being your son, Jesus Christ. If you cry out to him this morning, I guarantee you, he'll answer your prayer. He'll save you. He'll forgive your sin. When it comes from a sincere heart, a desperate heart, a heart that has nowhere else to go, a heart that's broken over their sin, repentant, turning from their sin to God. God desires to have that kind of an intimate relationship with you here today. And as believers, I just pray that we would examine our own hearts as we partake of the elements here in a few moments that you would just remind us of the death and the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. It just helps us to keep everything in perspective. And Lord, we we thank you for your grace here this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.